Now, our latest guest in the Top 5 book series. Uh, today's guest, how do I introduce him? Journalist, scriptwriter, uh, director, columnist, political, political advisor, former senator. I am, of course, uh, talking about Owen Harris. Uh, Owen, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks, Shane. Um, listen, before we get to the list, look, I mean, people won't be surprised to, to hear you're passionate about books. I read probably a book a night. Uh, I usually have three going, like all serious readers do. I didn't come from a particularly literary home. Um, my father was addicted to British political journals like the New Statesman, even though he came from the Cork kind of working class, come lower middle class. He was passionate about politics and he had subscriptions to John of London's Weekly and New Statesman. So he was into kind of political magazines and he took in American magazines. My mother um, read only the Bible and Shakespeare. And that's all she did. And she read the Bible, I think, for sardonic amusement. She was a peasant from Roscommon and she found the hairy stories in the New, St- in the New Testament very funny. And I think the sex and all that yeah. appealed to her. And the wildness of it appealed to her of the New Testament, yeah, of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, because it yeah. it's fairly savage it's stuff. It's fairly savage it? stuff. And so we grew up in this kind of Game of Thrones gothic <laughs> atmosphere of the Bible, you know. Um, Just without, uh, without, the, um, yeah. without the dragons, basically. And yeah. Without the dragons. And the other book, uh, the other was Shakespeare. Um, she went to a national school in Roscommon and I think they left it about f- after four years. But they must have had Shakespeare in the house because she knew told tracts by heart. So much so, the Bible and Shakespeare kind of imbued her ordinary conversation so much that um, when I'd ask her for money, um, she'd say to me, he who steals my purse steals trash. And I would think that she was talking to me and wonder if what was wrong with the purse and I'd turn it upside down and shake it. And I didn't realise she was quoting from Otello. He filches me, my good name had done me harm indeed, but my purse is trash. And that was the way she was. And I suppose that gave me um, my, 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 my passion, if you like, for I, I love good prose and I love Shakespeare. But I am not a passion. I'm not passionate about literary fiction. I'm not in love with literary fiction. And mostly that's because um, I think plot is preeminently important. Listen, let's, let's get to some of your choices. Um You've gone for, I suppose, a, a classic, and a classic a lot of people will have read, particularly people, I think, of a certain generation. Um, uh, Just William and uh, um, Rick Mel uh, uh, Crompton. Um, why, why this choice? It's, I mean, you're from the Rebel County. I mean, this isn't exactly, uh, this isn't exactly Rebel County reading material, is it? Well, it is actually, because uh, as... Uh you know, that whole generation of Fulline, O'Connor, uh, the, the revolutionary generation, they grew up on the magnet, the gem, chums, the boys' own paper. They were imbued with Victorian values. I mean, that was the stoicism of the 1916 generation. That was what all the, the gentlemanly stuff was, t- treating prisoners well. It was all part of that whole uh, chaps behave well stuff. William was different. Um, William is was hugely influential in my life. I began to read William at 11 uh, and he was 11 and a half, and I identified strongly with him. Um, there were two libraries in Cork, a city library and a county library, and to keep up with my reading, I had to join both of them, and I would trudge from school from one library to the other looking for more William books. William is 11 and a half. Very like myself, I lived in the village of Douglas, which, was, which had new housing estates bordering on countryside. In other words, we lived in what was called a park beside the rustic village, which had an old Garda station, sleepy horses were still around, and there was a blacksmith there who spoke Irish. And that's William's village. That, that, the Williams village in England is like that. So William is 11 and a half. His father does something vague in the city of London. Uh, he takes a train, he commutes from there. His mother's long-suffering. Um, 
his sister Ethel is incredibly beautiful and a flapper. Um, and Robert is a kind of a dying swain, his elder brother. They're set in the post-World War One period in a timeless world, very like P.J. Woodhouse in the 20s and 30s. And Richmond Crompton was an extraordinary woman. She was a teacher in a, a girls' school. And at 23, she contracted polio and she couldn't move. So she began to write stories. And I, I like to say that all writers are clinically insane about their own work. And like Arthur Conan Doyle, she had no time for the William stories that everyone adored. She fancied herself as kind of writer of kind of big novels. So the William stories were pumped out almost reluctantly. But what they had was a magic cast of characters. And the thing was, in every book of William, there were five to six stories and each of them was powerfully plotted. And it gave me a lifelong addiction. Um, I regarded, I mean, they're beautifully written and they're full of comedy and satire. I mean, she was brilliant at sending up things like the League of Astral kind of beings, people dancing the lawn half naked and William and his gang would watch them kind of with beady eyes. And William had a horrible bottle of water which he put a bit of licorice into and he'd shake it and it turned black and these astral beings would grab it like today's alternative um, complementary medicine people and they say oh my god what is it and he'd say it's, it's licorice water and they'd say oh licorice water so natural so pure and it was into the whole organic stuff so in the 30s she was sending up all that stuff the the- theosophical societies and that and she sent up the Nazis yeah, I was going to say, because there yeah, is a political yeah, yeah, thread to there, it. There it? is. But above all, what she, what she was was a wonderful plotter. Uh, and by plot, I mean, I mean necessity, that at the beginning of a story, you have to make a choice. It's a hard choice and one you don't have to make. And I can remember from memory uh, the opening of one story. There's new people in Honeysuckle Cottage, said Ginger. There's always new people in Honeysuckle Cottage, said William. And you've got the lot. You've got the location, you know, exterior, cottage day, Holy Circle Cottage. You've got the location of the story. You've got this mysterious group of new people coming in. You've got Ginger reporting to William. So she doesn't have to tell you that Ginger's a gopher. He's the number two. Yeah. He's the 80 com. And William slaps him down by saying, there's always new people at Holy Circle Cottage. And there in one line, you have the same economy as Jane Austen. But these long meandering introductions like that are basically just writers showing off. I have no time for them. But anyway, the William books um, are an addiction of mine. I I still read them. They're my comfort books. And when I, I read them, I enter the timeless world of 1920s, 1930s Britain between the wars when things were peaceful. Now, the PC generation were onto William very quick. And in the 1960s, it, they took him out of the lending libraries because they felt he was too middle class. But William is a natural rebel. He writes uh, ungrammatical stories. His hat is always, his cap is always askew. He's a dog called Jumble and he's always outdoors. Compared with this generation, like it just strikes me like I was. He's always out making bows and arrows and catapults like I was. We were in the woods in Douglas. He was in the woods outside his place. So you write about it being a generation. Maybe the, this generation doesn't have that kind of outdoor life anymore. And I love the relation with sardonic relation. His father's sardonic and his father pretends to have no relation with him. But the odd half crown slips into William's hand when William gets rid, rid of of an unwelcome guest who's been staying too long. <laughs> that's my okay. William. Brilliant, brilliant. So, and I have to say, all those characters that Owen was mentioning there, uh, he wasn't looking at any notes. They're, you, they, they, they're obviously very close to yeah. your heart, those characters. Uh, listen, let's get to your, your next choice. Um, and you've gone for, I suppose, the classic Irish storyteller in, mm. in Frank O'Connor. And, and particularly, one particular, his, his, the first part of his autobiography, An Only Child, is your choice. Yeah, well... It's not ego ranting, but like you, you, you read the stories that seem to resonate with yourself. There's a kind of a selfishness about reading, you know. I mean, 
Um, you know, and Frank O'Connor is kind of all of us in Cork. He is the Joyce of Cork. And he's particularly topical right now when we're embracing our British our British imperial heritage, if you like, as I prefer to call it. The Boer War, the First World War, those who went out to fight the fascists in the Second World War. They're finally, we've brought them in from the cold. But O'Connor brought them, brought them in from the cold back in the 60s. And his only child is, it begins really with his father and mother in a lane off, off Shandon Street. And his father's a Boer War veteran based in Cork Barracks. Jack, a big, strong man. Um, he's a political animal, the father. He's a member of the William O'Brien um, band uh, and he's fighting the Redmondites. And this is just so crucially important in, in the political history of Cork. That's been written out. Like in my own grandfather's military history bureau statement, most of his bile is reserved not for the British Ravenous, but for the Redmondites. He hates them because he hates the ancient order of Hibernians. They're, if you like, their physical force wing who used to beat people up. And he thought they were sectarian and tribalist because the Redmondites were very sectarian. Now, William O'Brien was an alternative party in Blackpool and Cork, and he believed in conciliation and consent. And in many ways, I always see him as the forerunner of the Workers' Party because he was for work, he was a working class party, but he believed the unionists had to be conciliated, that they had to be listened to in their troubles. So O'Connor's father was in that, and so he was political. But he rejected all of that, joined the IRA. He was a physical force republican. Physical force republican, joined yeah. the IRA, rejected his father, rejected his father's background, ended up in the IRA, and one night ended up in Cork Jail. And all night long he heard the, the crying of a boy for his mother, after being bayoneted in the ass, bayoneted in the ass by free state soldiers. Um, and he said, this is how it ends. He said, uh, with a with a cod of a priest mumbling at an execution wall at dawn, he said, and a poor lad crying from his mother. And he said, um, he said, I knew it was wrong. And where he broke with the IRAs, they wanted him to shoot free state soldiers during the Civil War when they were out courting with their girls. And at that, he couldn't do it. And he said, I refused the order, he said. But he said, while I balked at that, and I'm doing this from memory, so I mean, I'm not going to start quoting him, but he said, while I balked at that order, he said, I couldn't break with the group. And it's a fantastic example of group think, and it's one that I apply to modern Sinn Féin. You know, you, f- you find these wonderful local deputies, and they are the salt of the earth, the finest people you could imagine, and yet their minds are locked somehow on the question of Northern Ireland and the armed struggle. They can't bring themselves to say that was wrong. I mean, it's right that we should be doing water charges, but it's wrong that we should be, if you like, giving um, an imprimatur retrospectively to what happened. And O'Connor is, if you like, was the moral guide of my whole generation to the 50s campaign. Like, I I joined Sinn Féin early on. But what saved me from going into any wrong direction was, without a doubt, was reading Frank O'Connor. But, like, O'Connor also deeply affected me in in the sense that he loved Irish and he learned he, he, had, he, had no second, he had no college education he was self-taught but he learned Irish and old Irish and he translated the poetry of Egan O'Rahle the last of the great aristocratic bards who was mourning the collapse of Gaelic civilization. and I still remember his brilliant translation of the last lines of O'Rahle and O'Rahle's pride in the generations that had gone and would now be no more and he says death comes and I must not delay by lawn and lane and lee diminished of their pride I will go after the heroes, I into the clay. My fathers followed theirs before Christ was crucified. I mean, that's more than a translation. That's entering the whole mind of Egon or Ireland. In, in the, in the, and as you can see, I have it by heart. I learned it once and never forgot. And I have a terrible memory, by the way. I have only a memory for, for, for stuff that, that sticks out. And I can still remember the end, how powerful the guests of the nation was. And 
that poor sad soldier Belcher saying you know we're only doing our duty and he, and he says I, I don't really know what duty is lads but I, I, I know that you're good lads kind of thing and then he shoots their shot and then he goes out and he looks up at the stars and that incredible last line and anything that ever happened to me after I never felt the same about again and if you look and parse and analyse it it makes no sense because how could anything that happened to him after uh, never be the same again because he was back in say 1922 mm. when this happened but he meant that this act of murder, because really that's what it was. Um, tainted everything. Had tainted everything that would ever happen to him after. And I feel that that's why it's so important that I take a hard line as I do. When I take a hard line against Sinn Féin, about a quarter of it is only about Sinn Féin. The other three quarters is talking to fellas like myself when I was young, hoping that I can make them pause and think. OK, listen, uh, great choice and uh, you've made me want to go back and, and, and read Frank O'Connor. Uh, let's get to your next choice. And I have to say, we've had... Many fascinating choices in over the, the months we've been doing this, but we've never had a book that you have to go back, what is it, 2,300 yeah. years yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this we're talking BC and we're talking, I mean, yeah, yeah. somebody everybody will, will yeah. have heard of, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing not that many people will have read. And we're talking about Aristotle and uh, poetics. We're talking about Aristotle's poetics, which to me is probably the most single most important book in my life. Aristotle's poetics are lectures that he gave... Uh, on drama, tragedy specifically, but drama. And their their notes were taken by a student. So the poetic is quite a short book. It's very short. And these are rough notes taken on the nature of drama. And um, Alexander McKendrick, I know if you probably know his film, 